notes. Um, we were doing the essay on criticism, and it, today might be a little bit weird because we can either do the very melancholy and amazingly great um, Eloise at Abelard, or we can do the um, hilarious and very funny, even if you were a little lost in some of its lengths, um, Rape of the Lock. But uh, what we should do is um, finish talking about the at least that one section of the essay on criticism that we were looking at on Tuesday, um, where uh, remember the last, remember how many words were in the last line that we looked at? See, if you, if you think this is just a completely cracked oh, question. Yes, good. <laughs> yes, because ten low were, and ten low words oft creep in one, in one dull line. Um, so that's um, an example, as this whole passage is an example, or gives you examples of what it's describing. And it's part of Pope's um, amazing uh, skill as a poet, to um, be able to vary his style um, more than anyone, more even probably than Dryden. Um, he can vary his style. And um, he can say anything in any style. Um, and that's, that's an extraordinary poetic skill. So where we were was, this is, if you have the, um, uh, the Yale, the Twickenham edition, um, this is page 154 which is to say the essay on criticism, uh, line 347. So um, the bad, just to contextualize it again, bad critics equal syllables alone require um, the off, the ear, the open vowels, tire, while expletives, their feeble aid, do join and ten low words oft creep in one dull line. Um, Okay, so look up for the next couple. Just look up. Do but look up. While they ring round the same unvaried chimes with sure returns of still expected. Yeah. So what rhyme were you expecting? Rhyme. Um, sure returns of still expected. Yeah, rhymes, of course. What else could it possibly be? So again, the criticism is criticizing, is, is making its criticism by exemplifying the very thing that it's criticizing. And it becomes a really interesting question. Is this, it, it, how brilliant is this? Which is to say it's a critique of dullness, which takes the form of imitating the very thing that it critiques, but in doing that does it really brilliantly. Yeah. Um, this may be a very, like a question too in-depth. Who is this poem? Like, I mean, we talked earlier about how, like, with parody, people never see themselves, they right. see other people. In satire, so, like, yeah. is this for lovers of poetry to, you know, smile knowingly at poetry in general, or was this a specific dig at This is, well, so the, just to remind you that the context is that, that, that it used to be the case that um, you, that poets were um, amazing and people didn't quite know why, they just found them amazing. And then the more they did what's generally a good thing, which is to try to figure out um, what's amazing about the world, um, that um, philosophy, as Plato says, begins in wonder. And then what people do is they start thinking about the things they wonder about. And ideally, but what's extraordinarily difficult, 
is to preserve wonder while learning. Um, that is, you see something and it's, an, it's amazing, there's a rainbow. God, where does that come from? It's really beautiful. Oh, well, actually, it's drops of, of, of water um, in, in highly atomized but still condensed form that are acting prismatically and splitting the light of the sun. And then you, if you're one kind of person, you might say, thanks a lot. Um, that's not actually what I wanted to know. Um, I mean, it is what I wanted to know. It's just that that is not what I wanted the answer to be. Um, even if it's true, I wish the truth were different. So trying to preserve wonder while exploring the very thing you're wondering um, that, that fills you with wonder, that's, that's the trick of human intellectual life and not a trick that um, uh, can often be met. Um, one place that people say it's met fairly standardly is in math. That is, if you're a mathematician, the thing about math is that um, wonder opens upon wonder. Every time you understand something, um, there's something else which is even more amazing down the perspective. Um, but the, the risk is always, as Wordsworth will put it, and Wordsworth hated Pope. Um, Wordsworth's hatred for Pope is such that it's, that it's interesting to question um, how much he was getting out of Pope. Um, Keats also hated Pope, but echoes Pope a lot. Um, Wordsworth really hated Pope. I mean, it's amazing how much he hated it. Um, but Wordsworth's great line um, in the poem, The Tables Turned, which used to be a standard um, high school poem. Are you smiling because you know it? Uh, what's the line? I don't know what line you're talking about. Okay, so it's We Murder to Dissect. Um, that is, uh, you know, that's what every English teacher should keep in mind, um, which is you start dissecting a line of poetry and you kill it, you murder it. Um, in order to understand it, you murder it. Um, so what Pope is basically doing is saying the history of, of poetry in any language, or maybe in human culture in general, because he's giving you a little bit of a history of poetry here, is that you start with Homer, who just wrote this amazing stuff, and then people start saying, well, what made Homer so amazing? Let's try to figure out what made Homer so amazing. And um, what happens is, as they start figuring it out, they turn, the way I was putting it last time, is they turn laws into rules. Um, and the difference between a law and a rule, this is not a legal difference. This is a, this is a philosophical or a scientific difference. A law is something you discover, and a rule is something you impose. Um, a law is that light always goes at um, 186,000 miles per second. Um, a rule is to figure out whether you have right-handed or left-handed DNA, um, hold your fingers up and see which way they curl. Um, so a rule is a requirement. And Well, to, to take an example, um, this takes us far afield. Never mind. Um, but, but rules are not there in the world. Rules are rather um, our systematization of what we're finding in the world. Laws are what are there in the world, but they're very easy to confuse, rules and laws. Um, and what Pope is saying is um, Homer certainly shows you what the laws of poetry are, but they're like the laws of nature. They're not legislated. They're what works. We can see in Homer that this, that what he does is amazing and there's nothing like Homer. Um, and some of the other people that he describes, Longinus, who is himself the great sublime he draws. Um, 
then there are people who studied Homer and learned what poetry was from Homer. Homer knew it somehow instinctively. Others learned what poetry was from Homer, of whom Virgil is his great example. There are others, but of whom Virgil is his great example. Um, and so they understood the laws of poetry. They, they learned. They weren't born as Homer was knowing it, or they didn't find it sheerly through their own observation of the world as Homer did. But they knew that Homer was great. They could feel, as Homer felt, felt that his topic was great, Virgil felt that Homer was great. And so they were exposed to the laws of poetry through Homer. But the very fact that later poets were understanding poetry by looking at earlier poets meant that it started looking like poetry was a teaching and was a discipline rather than a response to um, perception. So if you think about it, I mean, this is essentially, I'm giving you Harold Bloom in a nutshell. I didn't mean to, but it turns out that Harold Bloom says something similar, which is, um, do people know who he is? Yeah, yeah, but that doesn't, that, there are a lot of people who do that. But yes, he does think Shakespeare, um, his book on Shakespeare is called Shakespeare, the Invention of the Human. Um, so he thinks almost literally Shakespeare is like God, that they really weren't human beings until Shakespeare invented them. Um, but um, what Bloom basically says is anyone who's a poet is torn between two, any real poet is torn between two different origins. Um, their poetic vocation seems to have two different um, roots. And one is that what a real poet, what real poetry comes from is from the heart. You speak from yourself, you speak from within. Um, poetry is the expression, as Wordsworth will put it, um, is the spontaneous overflow of powerful feelings. That's the famous Wordsworthian um, definition of poetry. He goes on a little bit, but, but it's essentially the spontaneous overflow of powerful feelings. So that it's human nature to, under sufficient stress and pressure, and probably if you're the right kind of person, um, but it's essentially human nature to be a poet. Um, that's why Wordsworth also calls it the natural language of natural men. Um, that is, poetry is just the heightening of, na of na not just a, poetry is the heightening of natural language, but it really is natural language. Um, so that's one view of poetry, and it's an important and powerful one, and anyone who is a genuine poet and who feels genuine poetic vocation had better think that they're writing from themselves. Um, the other, and actually this might be a, a good place to, to do a divigation into Eloise at Abelard for a minute, but the other view of poetry, um, or the other origin of poetry, is that when you're young, people who are poets almost always fell in love with poetry when they were young. Um, that is, that, that they read or heard or had read to them um, poems, some of which blew them away. And they thought, that's what I want to do. I want to be able to do that. I want to be able to say things like that. I want to be able to feel things like that and, and demonstrate my feeling of things like that. And that's, um, suddenly there's an external source for the wish to be a poet, which is not the feelings that are within you, but the feelings that you are reading in someone else. 
um, some poem blows you away and that gets you into poetry and eventually it gets you into writing poetry. So one possible, one, one myth, they're both myths, but one myth for what makes a person a poet. We're going to talk more about this when we, when we look at um, Collins and some later um, poem, um, poems, poems about um, poetic incarnation. But one origin for being a poet then is that um, you, have, you have intense feelings that, that absolutely demand expression, and the name of that expression is poetry. Um, and another origin is that you read the intense expressions of other people, and you find them so intense that you want to do the same thing. Um, and the truth is, almost anyone will feel both ways. Any poet is going to have both experiences. Now, Pope wants to reconcile these two not contradictory, but very different um, accounts of the origin of poetry. And so one way to reconcile it that works for everyone but Homer is to say that any true poet, one among the intense, passionate feelings that she has, are those feelings that she has when she reads poetry. That is to say, you don't have to say you're either getting your feelings from your heart or from reading Dickinson. What you could say is the feelings you get reading Dickinson and the feelings are feelings in your heart. That is, Dickinson is part of your world too. Reading her poetry or reading whatever poetry blew you away and made you want to be a poet, it was you that it blew away. It blew it away within you. It made you feel this very deeply. And if it made you feel it very deeply, then those are real feelings within you. So the reason Homer is different is that Homer didn't start out reading other poetry. Homer started out, this is according to Pope, Homer started out simply thinking about the world and feeling impassioned by that and then producing poetry only from feelings that derived um, from not other poetry but from within. And however, if you come after Homer, Homer is now part of the world that your feelings are coming out of. So Pope now has a kind of um, triple um, rhythm in his account. I don't know why you thought this would get us far afield. Pope <laughs> has a kind of triple rhythm in his account of, um, of, of the history or the cycle of poetry. Um, other people are going to call it a cycle. Pope doesn't, but... I think he may wish it were a cycle, which is first there's Homer who um, invents poetry, doesn't have poetry as a model to write poetry on, but invents it. Then comes Virgil, who, and this is in some accounts of the history, of the cyclical accounts of the history of poetry, Homer would be a representative of the age of gods, that is, the inventors of these things. Then comes Virgil, who sees how great Homer is and feels among the powerful experiences that he has and that poetry comes out of is the experience of reading Homer. And that is sometimes called the Age of Heroes. Um, Virgil is a heroic poet who is contending with and following the example of a god, that is Homer. Um, and so Virgil 
understands poetry as well as Homer does, not better, but as well as Homer does, and among the things he understands is Homer's poetry. Virgil thinks poetically, and among the things that he thinks poetically about is Homer. But then a later age says, look, Virgil is following Homer. Clearly poets are supposed to follow each other, and clearly poets therefore have a tradition of rules that they're supposed to um, be, be um, uh, obeying. And so you get a third age, which is one that thinks that what really matters in poetry are the rules. And people who think the rules matter are making that mistake, says Pope, because they misunderstood what it meant for Virgil to follow Homer. They thought that Virgil was following the rules that Homer had laid down, whereas in fact what Virgil was doing was responding to the laws that Homer was the first to bring down from Mount Olympus, not Mount Sinai, but Mount Olympus. So Virgil saw that Homer was right. People after Virgil thought that what Virgil saw was that Homer had set down the rules, had laid down the rules that had to be followed. So there's an inevitable decline, says Pope, in the history of poetry which everyone feels. I mean, it's always the case. Lots of people have noticed that it's always the case that the earliest poets in any language tend to be the greatest ones, that the greatest Italian poet is Dante, who was really the first Italian poet, that the greatest Latin poets were the Latin poets of the first century BCE. Yeah, there were, were some poets before them, but you know, in the first couple of centuries of modern, what we call modern Latin, and that the later poets were not so good, that the greatest Greek poet was Homer, that the greatest English poets in modern English, in English that we can read without um, dictionary or translation, are all clustered within 50 years of 1600 that you get from Wyatt to Milton in a century, um, and that most of our great poets cluster more, or the plurality of our great poets, Shakespeare, Milton, Spencer, done. All those people are clustered back then. Yeah. Because it's his rules followed what he was going to say. In other words, he wrote in a way appropriate to what he had to say rather than um, his deciding to say something that would be appropriate to the rules which allowed you to say it. Does that make sense? If they're, if they're doing it wrong. In other words, the, again, the law would be that if you write about the Trojan War, here's the, here's, you know, you should write with a certain kind of passion and a certain kind of compassion. If you're writing about something else, then don't write about this other thing as though you're writing about the Trojan War. Um, the law would be write appropriately. Let's say, I mean, this is the, just uh, as an example. Um, this is not a big law that I'm giving you. But a law would be something in the form of write appropriately to your subject. And a rule would be, oh, look, here's how Homer wrote when you're not paying any attention to, the, to what subject he wrote on. You're just saying, he said this is how you write. And the appropriately is left out. 
the rule leaves the leaves the idea of, of what's appropriate out, um, and only says write the way Homer wrote, no matter what you're writing about. Um, and that's Pope more than anyone is against that, um, more than Dryden, more than Milton, more than anyone. Pope is against a one-size-fits-all model of poetry, even if that size is Homer's. Homer's size is appropriate to the Trojan War. It's not appropriate, let's say, to the letter that Eloisa, to the letters Eloisa wrote Abelard. Um, to write that in Homeric style would be wrong. Or to give another example of, of that, to write about a card game in Homeric style would be wrong, but wrong in a really wonderful and interesting way. Um, but if you did it seriously, it would just be plain old wrong. Um, if you were serious about that, if you thought this card game really ought to be described as, um, as having you know, Homeric passions about it, that would be wrong. But if you do it parodically, which is, which is what Pope is doing in a mock epic like The Rape of the Lock, um, then what makes it funny is not any line, every single line, or almost every single line in The Rape of the Lock um, is pitch perfect, even for serious poetry. What makes it funny is the combination of lines and their subject, and that does make it funny. Um, it's, not, um, it's not that he is um, you know, writing vulgarly or demotically um, or uh, in a, in a kind of all shucks way. He's writing with the full genius of a serious poet in The Rape of the Lock, um, but everything about it is funny and is meant to be funny. Um, and that's a kind of demonstration of the question of appropriateness. So again, I mean, look, just, just to, because of, because of the um, large question of um, where you learn to be a poet, just look at the very end of Eloise Abelard, and then we'll go back to page 154, but this is page 261. Um, so this is the end. Just so I mentioned this before, but so you know the context of this poem, and I hope you guys found it moving. I mean, it, I think it's an incredibly moving poem. Um, but the context of the poem is in real life. I mean, Pope gives it to you in three or four lines at the beginning as a head note. But in real life, Eloisa and Abelard were lovers, and um, they were they um, were not supposed to be. He was in train. He was her teacher. He was in training for the priesthood. Um, and his punishment was that he was castrated, which she alludes to here several times when she says, you know, I still feel passion, but of course you don't. Um, you're unable to anymore. Um, and then they were put into, um, into convents. Abelard later became a very important, by the standards of, by our standards of importance, um, a very important um, uh, philosophical thinker. Um, and a scholastic philosopher. Um, but they continue to write letters to each other, and those letters are very moving. And what Pope is doing is kind of um, reimagining on the basis of those letters what Eloisa might have um, written to Abelard, the first letter she might have written to. So then she says at the end, this is starting at line 343, the last verse, paragraph, may one kind grave unite each hapless name and graft my love immortal on thy fame. So you're famous because you're a great philosopher. May my immortal love be connected to your fame. That is, may we come together as famous lovers 
um, loving each other and being famous. You're a great man, and I love you. And may that be something that people always remember about us. Um, then, and then this is the part I wanted to, to draw attention to. Then, ages hence, when all my woes are o'er, when this rebellious heart shall beat no more, if ever chance two wandering lovers brings to Paraclete's white walls and silver springs, so if there are ever two lovers who are wandering around and they come to this to um, the place where our grave will be, where in fact their grave is, um, the the monastery of the Paraclete, if ever chance brings two lovers there, um, if ever chance two wandering lovers brings to Paraclete's white walls and silver springs. Or the pale marble shall they join their heads and drink the falling tears each other <coughs> sheds. So what she's hoping is that they'll see the grave of Abelard and Eloise and they'll weep together and each will, um, will be aware of the other's weeping. They'll interchange tears. Um, then sadly say, let them sadly say, may this happen. Um, then sadly say, with mutual pity moved, oh, may we never love as these have loved. Let, may this never happen to us. From the full choir, when loud hosannas rise and swell the pomp of dreadful sacrifice, amid that scene, so at the, at the um, monastery when they're singing um, psalms to God, hymns to God, Amid that scene, if some relenting eye glance on the stone where our cold relics lie, devotion's self shall steal a thought from heaven. One human tear shall drop and be forgiven. So in the midst of praise of God, someone might remember us. Some relenting eye might glance on our gravestone. And even though, no matter how saintly and devoted they are, Maybe they would have one thought for us. They could, they could steal a thought from heaven. And a human tear could drop for us and be forgiven, even if they're thinking of us then. And sure, if fate, some future bard, shall join in sad similitude of griefs to mine. So if fate at ever, ever creates a future poet, bard means poet, um, and sure, if fate some future bard shall join in sad similitude of griefs to mind, to mind condemned whole years and absence to deplore, and image charms he must behold no more. Such, if there be, who loves so long, so well, let him our sad, our tender story tell. The well-sung woes will soothe my pensive ghost. He best can paint him. <coughs> who shall feel him most. Um, so who is that future bard? Pope. Yeah. So what Pope is having Eloise say at the end is, um, maybe I love you so much that the one thing I can think is that if in the future there's a man who's desperately in love with someone whom he will never see again or hasn't seen for years, maybe what he will then do will tell our story um, at, at, as a sign of, as an expression of his own love. So this is complicated but deep, 
usually complicated and deep go against each other. But in this case, they don't. This is complicated but deep, which is that Pope is having Eloisa describe in her own voice and very powerfully and convincingly and movingly the idea that later a poet like Pope might come and have her say these things. And really, it's better to think of this as being said by Eloisa, not Pope being clever, but Pope meaning it, meaning that he looks at Eloisa and he thinks, oh, she went through what I'm going through. And um, then he says, okay, so I'm going to write her story. And then the Eloisa he creates, but is a real person. She's based on a real person, and she feels real in this poem. The Eloisa he creates will think, oh, in the future someone may come and will feel the way we feel now and will weep for us and see in us something that is, that, um, is like what he too is feeling. Um, so there you can get, I think, a good sense of what Pope means by the idea um, that I'm summarizing or, or schematizing as that poetry um, comes from the heart He's the one who misses someone, who's in love with someone, but also comes from someone else, from Eloisa, um, in this case. Why does he write about Eloisa? Because he's in love. Why does he write about Eloisa? Because she was in love. Because um, her love is something that he can understand, and that in some sense, reading her letters, or reading their letters, made him realize that he wasn't alone. So the source of this poem in a very, very, uh, in a particularly clear way, this poem is declaring its source in both the real letters that the real Eloisa wrote and in the real feelings that the real Alexander Pope feels. And um, those two things are joining. That's that sad similitude of griefs. Um, again, I mean, if you were to, if you were to push that, it's important to see that they're joining the way Eloise and Abelard are joining and failing to join. All they can do is write each other. Um, the only thing they have now is writing. And the only thing Pope has is writing, namely the writing of this poem. Um, so all of those things. But it's really important to see that this isn't clever on Pope's part, that he's saying something that um, it's, it would be too easy to dismiss as cleverness. It's not cleverness. He's saying something that has the structure of cleverness but really is deep. Does that make sense, Liz? Does that? Um, okay, so go back to the essay on criticism. Go back to page 154 where what he's doing is saying, look, if it were just rules, then anyone could write a poem according to the rules. Um, but what matters is the very famous phrase he's going to use is that the sound shall seem an echo to the sense. Um, tis, not, tis not enough, no harshness give offense. The sound must seem an echo to the sense. We're about to get to that. Um, and the way sound echoes sense, that would be the law, that sound must echo sense. That would be a law of poetry. A rule of poetry is that a perfect iambic line should go to da 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 And that's what equal syllables would be. That is, you follow all the rules and it stinks, um, or you do it following your soul, following the law of poetry. And that law 
in its you know the 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 great law that Hillel says is um, don't do unto others what is hateful to yourself. Um, the great law of poetry is the sound has to echo the sense. Um, that's the law. Um, the law doesn't say what the sound has to be or what the sense has to be. Though that's the stupid idea of the of people who who write poetry by rule rather than by law. So. It's those people who think it's fine even if ten low words off creep in one dull line. It's those people who don't mind as long as the poem rhymes while they ring round the same unvaried chimes with sure returns of still expected rhymes than his example. Where'er you find the cooling western breeze in the next line, it whispers through the trees. Um, and it does in those two lines too, right? You find the cooling western breeze, and what happens in the next line? It whispers through the trees. But very differently from most other cases of the cooling western breeze in the trees. Because here he's saying, isn't that terrible how that always happens? But you can imagine that he's thinking of poems which, which say things like, um, and then betimes the cooling western breeze came to me as it whispered through the trees. And he's saying, that's crap. But what isn't crap is pointing out that that's crap and doing it just as gracefully or even more gracefully than the easy crap poetry. Um, if crystal streams with pleasing murmurs creep, the reader's threatened, not in vain, with sleep. So paraphrase that line, the second line there. Yeah, so you're threatened with the word sleep. That is, so if crystal streams with pleasing murmurs creep. Of course the reader is going to be threatened with sleep as the, as the obvious rhyme word, um, and not in vain because it's also going to be the state of sleep that you're threatened with. Oh, God, not sleep. Um, then at the last and only couplet fraught with some unmeaning thing they call a thought. Um, so what's Pope's view of thought? Given that he's, that he's writing by opposition? Does he really think it's an unmeaning thing? No, he's saying all what these people do is they write and write and write and they get, they get couplet after couplet after couplet. And finally they get to a couplet where they add that unmeaning thing of hardly any significance at all, the thing they call a thought. Um, then at the last and only couplet fraught with some unmeaning thing they call a thought. A needless Alexandrine ends the song. Remind us what an Alexandrine is. Yeah, an Alexandrian is actually a six is a six um, foot verse rather than a five. Um, the, I think I told you the reason for this is because it's it's actually there's a late medieval French poem which was the um, story of Alexander the Great, written in six foot lines. So those became that became known as the Meter of Alexander. The poem was called Alexander. That became known as the Meter of Alexander. And eventually poems written in that meter were called Alexandrine poems. Um, and it was imported into English as a way of stressing a line. 
Um, in five foot verse, occasionally you'll get the six foot verse called an Alexander. We saw um, Dryden do it all the time. Pope rarely does it. Dryden uses them all the time. So a needless Alexandrian ends the song that, like a wounded snake, drags its slow length along. So what's the point of that line? Describe that line. Right? Long. Describe it in 11 or 12 syllables. I couldn't ask you an easier question. Like? Like? Right. Yes, exactly. So it is itself like a wounded snake dragging its slow length along. Doesn't it seem like a really long line? That it's it's it, it feels like much more than one foot longer than the previous line, or than and ten low words off Creek Mondal line. That like a wounded snake drags its slow length along. There's a reason it seems so long, which is that there are a lot of stressed syllables in it. Um, that like a wounded snake drags its slow length. You see those stresses right next to each other? Snake drags in slow length. That also slows the line down intentionally. So he says, that's the end of that thought. Now he says, here's how things should be. Leave such to tune their own dull rhymes as though they're tuning an instrument and as though they're playing scales because they can't play anything else, leave such to tune their own dull rhymes and know what's roundly smooth and languishingly slow. So what would you say about the word languishingly in that rhyme? I can't believe the easiness of the questions I'm asking you. This is like, see where it says... Um, Rome is the capital of Italy. You see where it says that in line three? Okay, looking at line three, tell me, what is the capital of Italy? Okay, what would you say about the word languishing? What, and if you were to apply an adverb to its slowness, would you say that it's slow like a wounded snake dragging its slow length along, or would you say that it's languishingly slow? Do people know what languishingly means? It's a, it, well, to languish is to, is, to, is to fade away in grief, but to do something languishingly is actually a kind of, a kind of um, seductive weariness. Um, it's, it, and that, that's really what it means as an adverb. It's, it, it's as though you were languished, but someone who, st who stretches languishingly um, means that it's, it's, they're showing off. They're showing their body off with a slow and easy way that they're stretching. Yeah. Um, uh, right here, rhymes is spelled with an I, and two lines before spelled with a Y. Uh huh. Um, is that is it just two lines first? Like, is that or do, does, does one rhyme mean something else, or it, it, it there are sometimes, but probably not here. I think that it's it's great that you're reading that closely, and if you had an argument for it, that would be wonderful. <laughs> I suspect that it's that he wants variety by rhyming rhyme with a Y with chimes with an I, um, but that probably when he does it with an I, it looks a little yucky, and that's a dull rhyme. That is... Well, he's not rhyming on rhyme. Right. Time. Yes. <laughs> yeah. 
Um, but I think that he, he wants it to be a little bit clipped. That is, for Pope, I think the word rhyme is, is sort of a, that's a good word, pure and simple. Um, and so if he's going to talk about their dull rhymes, probably the I is a little bit, I mean, it's, a, it's completely optional how you spell it in the, in the early 18th century. But I think the I is slightly dismissive on his part. Um, just slightly. Um, and praise the easy vigor of a line where Denham's strength and Waller's sweetness join. So easy vigor, that's um, uh, one way of writing heroic couplets. And this is supposed to be an example of that. Easy vigor is a vigorously, is a, it just, just says self-confidence there in the way he can just put that phrase together. And then Denham's strength, remember reading Denham? Cooper's Hill, one of the first things we read. We didn't read any Waller, but um, Denham and Waller are two minor, but at the time um, important forerunners for this kind of poetry. And just notice the assonances there, Denham's strength, the N-N in Denham and strength, and then Waller's sweetness. Sounds so right, Waller's sweetness. You don't need to know anything about them to be convinced of, of the appropriateness of those words to them. And then, true ease in writing comes from art, not chance, as those move easiest to have learned to dance. Tis not enough, no harshness gives offense, which would be just following the rules. Tis not enough, no harshness gives offense. The sound must seem an echo to the sense. And that's what um, I was quoting for you before. Um, some of you probably used, and when I was in high school, um, everyone used a, a poetry textbook called Sound and Sense. Is this familiar to anyone? I know it's still being used because they still try to sell me copies um, uh, for you guys. Um, but yeah, I was very surprised to find out that that line came from Pope uh, when I was in college. Um, but, but the sound must seem an echo to the sense. Here I, here I want you to notice something. If you ask most people about that line, that's a very famous line, they'll remember it wrongly as the sound must be an echo of the sense or an echo to the sense. Um, notice that the word seem is better because it picks up the S in sound. The sound must seem an echo to the sense. Notice the alliteration in the line. Um, and notice that um, the fact that it's better as seen undercuts a little bit the point that's being made. So what the line is actually more or less saying is the sound should echo the sense. But if it were to say that, say that absolutely directly, it wouldn't echo the sense as much as it wants to. So here you can feel a little bit of tension between um, the idea and the demonstration of the idea in the word seen. But in a way, that's the point, that there's always going to be that tension. And a good poet is going to have a good sense of when to go for factual accuracy and use the word be, and when to go for poetic um, effect and use the word seen. And sometimes the sound really can only seem an echo of the sense, because you have to choose seen rather than be. Yeah. Uh, I was thinking very meta, but also... Very like meta other, is right. Yeah. Well, just like the other lines, it's also demonstrating itself, because the sound must be an echo of the sense, would be... He's saying it again, 
because right. what, what you will remember is B, even though it says C, which is why he has to say C, because C is the rule. Exactly. <laughs> Good. Um, anyone know the Wall Stevens poem, The Emperor of Ice Cream? Isn't that a great title? It's even greater when you find out that the emperor of ice cream is dead. Um, but the last two lines of the poem are, let be, let be, be finale of scene. The only emperor is the emperor of ice cream. So let seeming finally turn into being. Um, and I think he's thinking of this line. He's thinking of a lot of other stuff, too. But he's thinking of that line. Um, Soft is the strain when Zephyr gently blows. What's Zephyr? Which went the west wind, right. So soft is the strain when Zephyr gently blows and the smooth stream in smoother numbers flows. So those are both examples of the sound echoing the sense. I'm not going to say scene or be, but just the sound echoing the sense. Notice that when Zephyr gently blows is even softer it's a, the whole line's alliterative. Soft is the strain when Zephyr gently blows. But notice how the line goes from S sounds to Z sounds. Soft is the strain when Zephyr gently blows. You have two S sounds that soften into two Z sounds. Soft is the strain when Zephyr gently blows. Do you guys believe that Z is softer than S? Is this a... Does this seem to you like an English teacher thing to say, or does it seem to you like something you can hear? Okay. Good. Um, and the smooth stream in smoother numbers flows. That is, the poem that describes the flowing of the stream is even smoother than the stream it describes. How does that line demonstrate itself? Go meta on that line. The smooth stream in smoother numbers flows. Okay, what about the what about the line itself? That is the numbers that dis the poem, the poetry. Numbers there means poetry. Um, the the poetry that describes the smooth stream is even smoother than the stream it describes. How is that line um, showing itself, proving itself? Yeah. Yeah, smooth stream are two stressed syllables in a row. The S's, which have already been established in the previous line, which is what, what Tal is noticing, the S's already give you smoothness and softness. But smooth stream, that's fine, but it's not quite as quiet and smooth as smoother numbers. And, note, and the, it's the errs, the unstressed syllables. Smoother is the err of comparative, right? Um, more smooth. The er in number has nothing to do with comparatives. It just, that happens to be the word, the syllable that the word number ends with. Um, but those errs become kind of lulling, become like the, like the purling of the stream. And the smooth stream, those are stressed but also long syllables. So they do get smoothed out, and the smooth stream but then it quiets down to in smoother numbers flows. 
So do people see that that line works the way it's claiming to work? Um, it's, it requires you to develop your ear, but that's what, I, another answer to your question, Lee, is that Pope wants you to develop your ear. He's also showing what he can do. But when loud surges lash the sounding shore, the hoarse rough verse should like the torrent roar. So, yes or no? Yeah. Um, what makes that sound like surges lashing the shore are the sh sounds, including the j in surges. Um, say, everyone do it. Say, lash, say, sorry. Um, say, uh, surges lash. And do you feel that your tongue and palate are doing the same thing in the j in surge and the sh in lash? They're very close. Your mouth is doing something very similar in making both those sounds. Surges, lash. So the loud surges lash the sounding shore. The R sounds also. The hoarse, rough verse should like the torrent roar. So again, hoarse picking up roar and shore and torrent being a variation on that. The vowels here or the syllables ending with R are torrential in the in these two lines. When Ajax strives some rock's vast weight to throw, a weighty line? Yeah? The line too labors and the words move slow. Not so when swift Camilla scours the plain. Um, Camilla is uh, um, a figure from the Aeneid known for her speed. She's a warrior, incredibly fast warrior. Not so when swift Camilla scours the plain, flies o'er the unbending corn and skims along the main. So, quick question without counting. I mean, the fact that I'm asking this means you can answer it. Um, you can guess right easily. But which do you think has more syllables? That, like a wounded snake, drags its slow length along or flies o'er the unbending corn and skims along the main. Um, the same is a good guess. The first seems, um, seems to be more obvious, but no, flies o'er the unbending corn and skims along the main. Count them. Seven syllables? <laughs> Flies o'er the unbending corn and skins along the man. Yeah. Um, it's, it's longer, but it's fast because what's it doing? It's skimming. It takes a lot of steps, but it's also kind of skimming as it does it. Um, here, how Timotheus varied lays surprise and did alternate passions fall and rise. While at each change, the son of Libyan Jove now burns with glory and then melts with love. Now his fierce eyes with sparkling fury glow. That is the son of Jove's. Who is that? See, he's talking about a poem you've read. Ah, check out the footnotes. Timotheus, the son of Jove. Timotheus singing to him. Yeah, so what poem? Alexander's Feast, the Dryden poem, Alexander's Feast. So remember, it's, it's one of the St. Cecilia Day's poems that Dryden wrote, and it's about how Timotheus gets, marshals, gets the martial um, mood into Alexander and then gets um, a mood of grief and of sorrow and gets a mood of love and a mood of languor 
and it's music that can do this. So now Pope is praising Dryden. Um, he's, he's summarizing Dryden's poem on Alexander's feast. Um, here how Timotheus's varied lays surprise and bid alternate passions fall and rise, while at each change the son of Libyan Jove now burns with glory and then melts with love. Now his fierce eyes with sparkling fury glow. Now sighs steal out and tears begin to flow. Persians and Greeks like turns of nature found, and the world's victor stood subdued by sound. So Timotheus can control Alexander. The powers of music all our hearts allow. We all allow as to how music has this extraordinary power. And what Timotheus was is Dryden now. So he's saying what Dryden said about Timotheus and demonstrated. Pope says, yeah, that's Dryden himself. Um, again, not a rule follower, but a law giver, you could almost say, and certainly someone who understands what law is rather than simply what rules are. Um, okay, should we go to, is your hand up? No. Uh, do you want to go to Eloise and Abelard and talk about Rick and Locke? All right, let's start with Rick and Locke and then, um, if we don't get to more values in Abelard today, we will on um, Tuesday. So um, the note here tells you a little bit about um, the context of this poem, which is that um, basically it's what the poem says, which is that um, there were two, two, there was a young couple who were supposed to get married, and the guy, whose name is actually Delmere, not, but he's called the Baron here, um, cut off uninvited a lock of um, Arabella Fermor's hair, and she got so angry um, that she broke off the engagement. But Pope was asked by a friend of both of them, he knew everyone, and, um, they were, they were both Catholic families, and Pope too was Catholic, so there's a whole sociological thing going on here. Um, but Pope was asked to try and reconcile them, and he wrote a poem which was supposed to be at once delightful, um, accurate but delightful, and um, a way of trying to make the whole thing into um, something that w wouldn't be too much of a bone of contention. She liked the poem, but she never forgave the guy. Um, and their marriage uh, never took place. Um, but The Rape of the Lock is a description um, in epic style, or in what's now called mock epic, um, of the situation and its results. Um, the, uh, we read an earlier mock epic, which was Dryden's version of the Philemon and Valkis story. Do you remember that? Um, that is that they turn into trees. Um, uh, they treat the gods well, and, the, and uh, the gods turn them into trees so that they can always be together. And then in the, um, no, we, I'm sorry, we read the Swift version, and then in the Swift version they're chopped down, which is not true, the original. Um, so, uh, someone want to plot summarize? Yeah.
Yeah, first they play cards. Um, so a lot of, the name of the card game is Ombre, or Ombre, I guess Ombre is how you'd say it in, how they used to say it in the Wild West in the U.S. Um, and uh, first she's winning and then he's winning and the card game is like a battle in the Iliad. Um, and then he sneaks up behind her and uh, cuts off a lot of her hair you know, with disastrous consequences. Um, so did you guys like it? Did you find it funny? Okay, why did you want to do it? Did you? Yeah, well, it's... Yeah. It's exaggerated to a point where it is ridiculous. Um, and part of it uh, is... Uh, there's there's a lot of wonderful, um, if not parody, then fun poking. Some of it more serious than others, but but um, all of it in some sense fun. So if you just go to the very beginning, um, the uh, he's talking to the muse. He says this is an example of the dire offense that can come from amorous causes. Um, what caused, uh, at line six, say what strange motive goddess could compel a well-bred lord to salt a gentle bell? Oh, say what stranger cause yet unexplored could make a gentle bell reject a lord? In tasks so bold can little men engage and in soft bosoms dwells such mighty rage? And then having, having done an invocation to the muses, um, he starts telling the story. Saul, who Saul? The sun, good. Saul, through white curtains, shot a timorous ray and oped those eyes that must eclipse the day. What, whose eyes are those? Yeah, so, she's, so basically her eyes are so amazing that they're brighter than the sun. That's excessive, obviously, and um, it's meant to be. Ope those eyes that must eclipse the day. Now lapdogs give themselves the rousing shake. Um, they're all waking up. And sleepless lovers just at 12 awake. So what's the joke there? Sleepless lovers. <coughs> at noon. Yeah. yeah. The point is, so the point is in a single line, he gives you a really, really good summary of um, a certain kind of idle life. Um, that is, that the, these are people who have the leisure to sleep till noon, no morning classes at all. Um, so they're, they get a really, really, really good night's sleep. And then when they wake up, they say to themselves, oh, I'm a sleepless lover. They get to think of themselves as deep, and they also get a lot of sleep. Um, it's really the best of all worlds. Um, oh, I'm a sleepless lover at noon, they say at noon. Um, so, so Belinda is waking up and um, getting ready. And then we get to go to line 50. Um, uh, we get um, a long description of the um, thousand bright inhabitants of air. He calls them. So Belinda is guarded 
by sylphs, and then we get an account of where they come from. But what they are, they're fairies. It's a little bit like um, like Snow White. Um, that is that there are these little fairy creatures that are guarding her. Um, and um, he explains that what happens is that the fairies used to be human beings, but they eventually um, get translated. So one of them tells her, you have to watch out. Um, there's, we know that something bad is going to happen to you today. And then he explains who they are. Um, we were once, this is line 48, I guess, and we were once enclosed in women's beauteous mold. Then, by a soft transition, we repair from earthly vehicles to those to these of air. Think not when women's transient breath, woman's transient breath is fled, that all her vanities at once are dead. Succeeding vanities she still regards, and though she plays no more, or looks the cards. So even though we've died um, and can no longer play cards, we're like um, people who are older but who are watching the other people play. Um, and so these various um, fairies um, go to their first elements. Some go to fire, some go to water, um, some go to air, and some go to earth. And the sylphs are, um, at line 65, like coquettes in silks afloat repair and sport and flutter in the fields of air. And again, notice the fantasticness of a phrase like the fields of air. Um, that what Pope is so great a poet, that even though he's writing about this trivial thing and writing a funny poem, um, the perfection of the poem um, and it's a general rule, by the way, that funny poems have to be, light verse has to be much more perfect than serious verse. Serious verse has the excuse that it's trying to say something serious. Light verse doesn't have the excuse for poetic license of the seriousness of what it's saying. Um, and so it has to demonstrate um, the perfection of technique in a way that serious poetry does not have to demonstrate perfection of technique. Um, Pope's demonstration of perfection of technique is sublime. And, and he will just come up with these phrases that anyone else would kill for. Um, right in the middle of light verse, we sport and flutter in the fields of air. Um, and so what they do is they try to protect her um, from all the things that the world can do to her. Um, the sylphs make sure that everything is okay. Um, so he says, but you have to be careful. Now we're at line 113. Um, I know, or at line 110, 109. Well, start at 105. He now says, I myself, of these am I who thy protection claim. I'm not protecting the queen, but I'm protecting you. Of these am I who thy protection claim. That is, who claim to protect you, who claim the right to protect you. A watchful sprite. And Ariel is my name. Where's Ariel from? The Tempest. Um, and Ariel means spirit of the air. A watchful sprite, and Ariel is my name. Late as I range the crystal wilds of air. Again, isn't that just an amazing phrase? The crystal wilds of air. Um, air is crystal clear, and it's like the wilderness of air. 
late as I range the crystal wilds of air in the clear mirror of thy ruling star, I saw, alas, some dread event impend ere to the main this morning's sun descend, that is, before the sun sets. But heaven reveals not what or how or where. Warned by thyself, O pious maid, beware. This to disclose is all thy guardian can beware of all, but most beware of Anne. Um, good advice, always. Um, uh, he was speaking, then her dog wakes her up, and uh, she wakes up. Um, and then Belinda, he addresses her, Twas then Belinda, for report say true, thy eyes first opened on a billet doux. What's a billet doux? A love letter, literally a sweet letter, um, but a letter full of love. So you woke up and you saw some love letter that someone sent you. Um, wounds, charms, and ardors were no sooner read, but all the vision vanished from thy head. Um, what are those three words doing? Wounds, charms, and ardors. What does it mean to read wounds, charms, and ardors? Pope is just so amazingly compressed in his funniness that it's really worth asking. Yeah. That's what, yeah, and those are the words they're full of. So here's this love letter. She opens it up. She sees, oh, wounds by your wounds and charms by the ardors. And she just sees those words. Um, you know, just quick glance at the blog, which is a bill I do. Um, her response is essentially TLDR, but still. Um, and um, all, the all the vision of what Ariel told her vanishes from her head. And then she gets dressed. Um, and the sylphs help her dress as she dresses with all the beauty products that come from all over the world. This is England. This is Imperial England. This is England starting to flex its muscles as what's going to be the most powerful nation on earth. This is Britain that gets stuff from everywhere. So it gets gems from India and perfume from Arabia and um, tortoise shell combs and elephant tusk combs. All of these things come from all over the world in order to make her beautiful. Um, so she also has, we hear at the beginning of Canto 2, she has those two locks that hang behind her, and then at line um, 28 of Canto 2, the Baron is introduced, um, the hero-villain of the piece, the charming villain of the piece, the adventurous Baron, the bright locks admired, he saw, he wished, and to the prize aspired. Notice, by the way, that that's one of the rare but intended cases where Pope's rhymes are um, the same part of speech, and um, not only the same part of speech, but almost parallel words, admired, aspired. Um, but the point is that's a natural progression. It's like, yeah, villain of the piece, he's going to go through very rapidly through three or four different stages, and it go from admired to saw, wished, and aspired. Um, the adventurous baron, the bright locks admired, he saw, he wished, and to the prize, aspired, resolved to win. He meditates the way by force to ravish or by fraud betray. If any of you have read Paradise Lost, you will know that that's a one-line summary of the debate in hell in Paradise Lost as to what to try to do against God. 
um, takes up a whole book of Paradise Lost, um, one line in Pope. Uh, Milton is the great figure that Pope is, um, has in mind. And Milton writes the true epic of which Pope is writing, the mock epic. Um, so he thinks about this, and in the meantime, um, Belinda um, goes down the Thames and goes to um, play cards, and the sylphs are with her. Go to um, line 100. This is, again, Ariel speaking and warning the sylphs that they have to be very careful. This day black omens threat the brightest fair, he says that air deserved a watchful spirit's care. Some dire disaster, or by force, or slight, but what or where the fates have wrapped in night. Whether the nymph shall break Diana's law, what's Diana's law? Chastity, yeah, so something terrible's gonna happen. Maybe she will lose her virginity in premarital sex. We don't know whether the nymph shall break Diana's law or some frail china jar receive a flaw. So what makes it mock epic is those two things are regarded as equally anxiety-provoking. Oh no, what happens if there's a chip in the china? Um, it's the same joke Oscar Wilde makes at his death, you know, his last words, either that wallpaper goes or I do. Um, that is that it's a crime against the human body and against life, or it might be a crime against taste if this if this china jar um, gets chipped, um, uh, or whether the nymph shall stain her honor or, a new, or her new brocade. Um, so she might stain her honor, metaphorical, or the new brocade she's wearing. She might spill some tea on it, um, literal. Forget her prayers, or miss a masquerade, or lose her heart or necklace at a ball. <laughs> or whether heaven has doomed, that shock must fall. Haste then, ye spirits, to your charge repair. The fluttering fan be Zephyridus care. The drops to thee, brillante, we consign. And momentia, let the watch be thine. That is, not only watch out for her, but watch out for her watch. Let the watch be thine. Do thou, Crispus, attend her favorite lock. Errol himself shall be the guard of shock, the dog. Um, and then... The, all the um, spirits try to help her. And then let's just look at the very beginning of Canto Three, which is very famous um, opening stanza. Um, this is uh, setting the scene at Hampton Court. Has anyone been there? Um, next time you go to London, if you go to London, whenever you get a chance to go to London, make sure to go visit Hampton Court. It's, the, it's Henry VIII's um, palace. It's kind of a British version of Versailles. And it's, it's pretty amazing. So close by those meads, forever crowned with flowers, where Thames with pride surveys his rising towers, there stands a structure of majestic frame, which from the neighboring Hampton takes its name. Here Britain's statesmen oft the fall for doom of foreign tyrants and of nymphs at home. So the statesmen sit around talking here and they think about the foreign tyrants whom they're going to cause to fall, and also the nymphs at home, whom they're going to cause to fall, that is, by seducing them. Um, hear thou, great Anna, he's referring to Queen Anne, hear thou, great Anna, whom three realms obey, dost sometimes counsel take, and sometimes keep. Um, so what's the joke there? 
It's like stain her honor or her new brocade, um, or lose her heart or necklace at a ball. One verb, two different direct objects. Here, thou great Anna, whom three realms obey, does sometimes counsel take, and sometimes tea. It's actually pronounced tea at the time. So you sometimes take counsel there, you sometimes take tea there. Um, one verb, two different objects. Uh, there's actually a technical name for that, which is zoigma. But here, the funny part, it, there's some great limericks which use it also. But the funny part is that the word means two different things depending on its direct object. To foredoom the fall of a nymph is different from foredooming the fall of a tyrant. Or the fall of a nymph is different from the fall of a tyrant. Um, losing a necklace is different from losing a heart. Staining your honor is different from staining a brocade. Taking counsel is different from taking tea. And the joke is that he can pack that all in to a single verb. Okay, we'll do a little bit more of this, but you know, just keep up with the reading um, because we'll skip and hop around. And have a good weekend. Out of curiosity, uh-huh. why is shock always the dog name? It's a kind of dog, actually. Um, so there's a, I forget what it is, but it's um, the technical name for the breed of dog sounds like shock. So, so it's not like fighting. No, it would be more like spot. Um, that uh, that is your you're actually saying yeah. Here's this it, um, just trying to think. You know, sometimes people you know um, here's here's Kidder's my cat. So it's that sort of thing.